0: Alrighty. So what is it that Jesus offers that every single human being is looking for that is to be the controlling agenda that the church is to be driven by, the central dynamic that it is animated by, and the dominant characteristic we should be known for? What is it? We saw it last week in the first Sunday of a teaching series through the book of 2 Timothy. And I'd invite you to turn to that book as we're... Talking here. It's a little letter by Paul toward the end of the New Testament to Timothy. Uh, turn there. What we are to be known for is the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. No wonder Kelsey's excited, right? God's promise is even better than we ever dared dream. As Paul says in, in just one page back from this in the book of 1 Timothy, the life that is truly life. Or as Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. On occasion, someone will come to me with a life challenge or a hurdle or a dilemma that they haven't been able to resolve. And I'll listen to them and they'll come to a point where they actually ask me for advice. Can you believe that? They ask me for advice. I, sometimes I, I, I walk into it very, very gingerly. I test to see how ready they are. And then I offer them what I think is God's advice. And sometimes they have the courage or audacity, whatever it is, to respond to me and say, well, that doesn't work in real life. And I, I've got bite marks on my tongue. Because what I really want to say is, let me, let me think that through a little bit. You're here because what you're doing now isn't working. And you've come to me knowing that I do God. And you're asking me for advice. Maybe we need to begin talking about how we think about and how we define real life. Because life, real life, is what Jesus offers. Last week, uh, just a very quick review for those of you who weren't here. And a reminder for... Or, uh, 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 not a review for those of you who weren't here. That doesn't make sense, doesn't it? I'll bet you you teachers made that mistake once too. An introduction to those of you who weren't here. A reminder for those of you who were. Three levels of life. There's that bios level, these, these are the Greek words that is used in the New Testament and we recognize just about all these words, bios, biology, physical life, tangible stuff, not just our body but, but, but what we can touch and feel and see, assets, the things that we can measure, life as quantity and the key question is how much and some of us are still pursuing this level of life, more, more, I need more. But then we come to a point of realizing more is not what it's all about. It's about quality. And there's a a word that describes that. It's it's suke. It's the word life that's sometimes translated soul. It's the word, of course, that what some of you are studying in school. Psychology. Life as quality. And the question is how well. It talks about how we think and how we feel and our attitudes. But real life in Jesus, whenever... Jesus talks about life, and when it describes God and life, it always uses another word. It's called zoe. Life as quintessence. The life of God in us that we lost when humanity walked away from God, and the entire story of the Bible is all about how God has worked in history to bring that life to us, and He is going to work in history to bring it to completion and fullness. God gives that highest level of life in Jesus, defeating death for us and in us, planting his life inside of us. We tend to settle for and aim for the first two, don't we? And work hard, spend all of our resources, our time, money, and brain power, and spend all of our emotional energy, worrying and fretting, trying to get the first two levels when it's really the third level that our hearts are looking for, and that level of real life makes all the difference in every other kind of life. Are you living the promise? Are you living in the promise? Are you living by the promise? Are you living out the promise of life in Christ Jesus? Are you living for the promise? Let me take that one step further to the here and now, really here and now. When you came in here this morning, what was your expectation? What did you come for? Did you say when you walked across that parking lot? Because I'm here because I love celebrating the promise of life in Christ Jesus. I'm here this morning because I want to share the promise of life in Christ Jesus. I'm here this morning because I want to grow in allowing the promise of life in Christ Jesus to overcome and invade and capture all of the deadness in my life. I'm here because I want the promise to be what empowers me this week in a world that is trying to rob me of life in Christ Jesus. I hope that's why. And I hope that's how you came because we tend to get what we expect, right? Is that what you came for? So in that light, let's read the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. And as, as we read, I'm going to ask you to just think of these two questions. Uh, I'll keep it on the screen as we read. Think of these two questions as we read it together. Number one, what's the central life insight, the, the Zoe insight that empowers me to live this life of promise? What is it? And number two, what are some of the signs I'm living the promise, that I'm living in it, that I'm living it out, that I'm living for it? Well, just even jot it down on a, on a piece of paper if you... If you do that. It'll just help you as we read through it. Okay? Uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For the spirit God gave does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us. And called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought zoe and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet, this is no cause for shame. Because I know whom I've believed. I'm convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. With faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. More the Lord, may the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So here's Paul, writing from a prison cell, waiting for his execution, writing this handing-the-baton letter to the next-generation leader, Timothy, who will take over leading the churches of Asia Minor and into what we now know as the Western world, which Paul established. And Paul's saying to Timothy, Okay, take it over. It's your turn. And in retrospect, it is actually this book that is a key book in helping us understand some of the the human factors in why the church of Jesus Christ became the dominant faith in the Western world. And increasingly, even today, the dominant expression of faith in the entire world. So in that light, there are probably a few things we might want to learn from this book. The reason we're in this book is because we're entering a phase of life in our church where we need to focus more intentionally on, on passing the baton to the next generation and tonight we'll be asking for permission to take some direction some some surface program direction which will require some building renovation that are all about helping us offer more effectively the promise of life in Christ Jesus in our world. We're going to work our way through this book because as we process those surface decisions, we want to make sure We remember what's underneath it all, what it's all about and give ourselves to the heart of the matter rather than just expect expect bricks and mortar and and some surface programming to make it happen. Now before we walk through this passage in in a little bit more detail, um, I I want to tell you why it is that this book is so powerful for me. As a young pastor, like many pastors I know, I, I lived in the books of Timothy and Titus. Almost every year I'd work through one or two or, or all three of these books. I, I thought I was doing it because, you know, it's, it's what I should do because these are so the sort of key Bible texts that spoke to younger leaders. But when I was 30 years old, I had this self-insight experience that made me realize why it was that I really felt the need to live in these books. I was Timothy in more ways than I realized. By the time I was 30, I'd had several great mentoring and development experiences. Right out of college, I had a really good three-year stint with a great mentor as the first second pastor in a church in the greater Toronto area. I had an awesome graduate school education and experience there. It wasn't just about academics, but hands-on practical experiences. I had the wonderful privilege of being the first formal intern with a very prominent leader of church renewal in the in the 70s and 80s, coming, coming out of the Jesus movement of the 60s. His name was Gene Getz. Some of you have heard of him. I worked under his tutelage for four years. And then I came back to Canada to another church as its first second pastor. They had, they had hit the, the, the number of 200 in their attendance several times. And, and somebody had this brilliant idea that in order to crash through that, they needed to staff for growth. And, and so they hired this young guy with a pedigree they felt sufficient to, pastor, uh, to be a pastor to youth and young families from, from the second chair. I didn't think I was cocky, but I, I had some degree of confidence. I, I knew I was ready. But then, in month six and month seven that I was there, two things happened back to back that helped me see this readiness piece in a whole new light. Month seven, the lead pastor who was in his 60s had a career-ending injury, and he was off the scene. And at least for the foreseeable future, the reins were in my hand. Turned out to be 25 years. And I came to realize that it was a whole lot easier to be confident when they are in the second chair than in the first chair. You know why they call it the second chair, don't you? It's because it's way too easy for this guy in the second chair to second guess the work of the guy in the lead chair. Now, we we had a very good relationship, a, a very good sense of alignment. I never undermined him, but I knew there were certain things that could be done a bit more effectively, and I could probably do them. But, by the time his accident happened, something else had happened the month before, that had rocked my confidence significantly. And in a strange way, it prepared me for taking over the reins. Very suddenly, in a highway traffic accident, my father had a head-on encounter with a semi-truck, and he didn't make it. He was gone. Boom. In the weeks following that accident, I had feelings I couldn't understand. It took me some time to figure out You see, by this time, at 30 years old, I I had been independent from my parents already for 13 years, financially independent, completely, independent in my decision-making. It's not that I had a bad relationship with my dad, it's just that, well, there didn't seem to be much need for a relationship. They bought me for my high school graduation present, a set of suitcases, and that was it. And I'd been happily married for six years by this time, and we were in our groove as a couple, processing and walking life together independently. For six years, we were living about 4,000 to 4,500 kilometers away from both of our parents. We were independent. But when my dad was suddenly removed from the scene, the dominant feeling that came to my mind was that the man who was ahead of me on the road of life, the man who was blazing the trail for me in ways I'd never realized was gone. And I was now alone at the head of the pack. And I was not ready. It shook my world. In a good kind of way. Because I know where to turn. The book of 2 Timothy. Timothy, who had in many ways been on his own for a while already, figures out that Paul has probably gone for good. And he is overcome by a lack of confidence. What? Me? I'm not ready for this. I'm not gifted for this. Take over from Paul? Are you kidding me? Paul knows that, and he puts it on the table. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying of hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid. Lack courage, confidence. Why does Paul say this that way, in in the negative? Why doesn't he just put it in the positive? He says it because Paul knows Timothy, and he knows it's real. This is not a theoretical possibility, but Paul has more confidence in Timothy than Timothy has in Timothy. No confidence, is Paul, no problem. Confidence in Timothy? No, not in Timothy. It's understanding what Paul is saying, what Timothy is hearing in what Paul is saying, in this one phrase, that is the central life insight, the zoe insight that empowers me to live a life of promise, real life in my life. God did not give us a spirit of timidity. The spirit God gave us, it's all about the Spirit God has given. What Paul is doing with this statement is he is taking that generic promise of life statement from the first verse, and he's making it personal for Timothy. Timothy, before we talk about the job you have, let's talk about you. Let's talk about what you have. Now, he's just talked about his and Timothy's personal relationship, and In verse 3 and 4, he says, I remember your tears. I I long to see you so I may be filled with joy. He talks about the authentic faith that that he's seen in Timothy and and that Timothy has got from his mother and grandmother. And Paul says, I know, and you know, you've got that. And Timothy, you know, working together with you was good for both of us. I would love to be with you so that I could pump your tires, so that I could bolster your confidence, so that I could remind you, you can do this, but it wasn't just that you needed me, I needed you. We, we work great together. But as Paul is thinking about their own teamwork and, and, and the separation of that, Paul is also thinking of something else. He's thinking, you know, this is not a new experience. What's happening to Timothy with me gone, what's happening to this movement of Jesus with me removed from the scenes has happened once before. And it was not just okay, it was necessary. It was powerful. What's happening to Timothy is exactly what happened not too many years before to the disciples of Jesus himself. Jesus has said that he would build his church. And then suddenly... Boom, he is gone. And these guys are left to do it by themselves in a hostile environment. They were persecuted by their own people, the Jews, Paul being one of them. And they were persecuted by the political leadership, the Romans. But although they felt like they were alone, they were not alone. And Jesus had promised they would not be alone. In order to understand what Paul is saying, we have to go back to what Jesus taught in His handoff. Flipping your Bibles back to the Gospel of John, one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, right at the beginning of the New Testament, John chapter 16. Jesus has told them, beginning in chapter 14, that He's going to be off the scene shortly. Now, they don't realize that shortly means like in a couple of days. And He's preparing them for that with the number one preparation they need. His last major teaching before he's gone. He's told them in chapter 16, verse 1, he's laid it all out, what's going to happen to him and what's going to happen to them as a result, that they're going to be ostracized by their own family and friends, by their cultural background because of him. And then he says, you guys are sad and shocked, and in your sadness and shock and panic, you're asking the wrong question." The question you're asking is, what are we going to do? That's not the question you should be asking. The question you should be asking is, hmm, where are you going? And how is that going to help fulfill your mission of you building your church? Your first thought is, how can He do this to us? But what you should be asking is, hmm, He's proven that he's wise beyond anybody we know. He's loving beyond anybody we've ever experienced. And he has got more power than we've ever seen. He has demonstrated that he's the lover and leader we're looking for. So if he's leaving, hmm, where might he be going? And, and how might that be something that's good for us, right? But we tend to have a very now-focused, self-focused way of thinking. Even though we say we trust God, as soon as we're given an opportunity to actually trust God, it's like, God, what are you doing to me? Right? And then Jesus, after he says this, he makes that that gag me statement that we hate. Oh, I'm doing this for your good. Seriously, he actually says it. Verse 7 of chapter 16. I tell you truly, it's for your good that I'm going away. Really? Really? How can you say that? But Jesus doesn't stop. Unless I go away, he says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit that he's been talking about since chapter 14 will not come to you. You see, where I'm going is back home to the throne room of the universe where I have ultimate control over everything that happens. And the first order of business when I get there is to send him to you. And what will he do? Well, let's go back to chapter 14 when he first talked about leaving and sending the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, he's told them he's leaving in the, in the first six verses, but he's not really leaving them. Verse 16, I will ask the Father. He will send you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world can't accept Him. They can't have or receive Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him because He lives with you and will be in you. And then he clarifies it even further. This is not some vague entity. This is not some force. I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I, I am coming to you because I live now and forever. You are going to live. Folks, this promise is so astounding. It is so unbelievable few of us actually grasp it. If you had taken a poll of Jesus' disciples and asked them the question, what would you rather have, Jesus beside you or or Jesus' spirit in you? I would venture to say that every single one of them would have said, are you kidding me? We'll take Jesus with us any day. We don't want him to leave. Can you see how this must be in Paul's mind as he puts on the table with Timothy Yes, I wish we were together, and I know you think you're not ready, and and you think you don't have the right personality, but remember that Jesus' followers, the one he commissioned to take over when he was gone, they were in the same position. And he reminds Timothy the same thing Jesus tells them, for the Spirit God gave us. The Spirit God gave you, Timothy, his Spirit. Back to John 14. Let's look at that more closely in, in the light of what Paul says to Timothy. What is it that Jesus first says about the Holy Spirit that he will send? You know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Not just with us, but in us. Because I live through the Holy Spirit, you also will live. Now, I really don't have to ask you to guess, do I? It's one of those three guesses, the first two count, two don't count kind of questions. What life word do you think it is? that Jesus uses when he says live. It's the verb form of zoe. Real life, true life, full life. And what is the essence of that zoe life? On that day, when the one I promise will come, you will realize, you will become personally and powerfully aware that I am in my Father. I am one with my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, the life I am The life I have will be in you. Of all of the gifts God has given, the one that makes the most impact in life every single day of life is the Holy Spirit. Because it is the Holy Spirit inside of us that is the zoe that we were created for and are looking for. God's life in my life. It's not just another level of life. It's a whole new kind of life. And we wonder why Jesus called it new birth. Paul, when Paul came to see Jesus for who he really is and understood Jesus' teaching, here's what he said. Romans chapter 8. Romans is sort of his, the epitome of his sort of theological understanding. And chapter 8 is the mountain peak of that great book. Therefore, there is now no condemnation Yesterday is gone for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Literally, it's the law of the Spirit of life. It's so easy to hear that. It just sort of in transactional terms, isn't it? It's, it's a transaction that God effected in Jesus. And, and we can go free. Oh, it is that, but it is so much more. Later on down in verse 9. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Oh, verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, the bios level, but you're in the realm of the Spirit, if, I, if indeed the Spirit of God lives you in you. And here's the deal. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if you belong to Christ, Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will give life, zoe, to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. So what is the Holy Spirit all about? The overarching, the one big thing about the Holy Spirit, the only thing you really need to know, well, basically, the foundational thing you need to know, is that He is God's gift of life. Not just to you, not just for you, but in you. He is there. He is real in my life. He doesn't just give me life. He is real life in me. Have you allowed your mind to just begin to think of of, of what that means? I wish I had time to take you on a trek through the Bible from the very first statement to the very end, sort of like we did last week with the word life, to start right from the beginning, the second verse in the book of Genesis, that this was part of the promise of life in Christ Jesus right from the very beginning. This is your life story, or at least it can be. Now that's that's sort of the, the truth level, the, the the level of objective facts. But what does that mean at a personal, practical, real life level? Let me go back to my experience sitting in the second chair after I'd finished my graduate school and thought I was ready, or at least tried to convince myself that I must have all the tools I needed. I was sitting in the office of the pastor with whom I was working one afternoon. He, he had the habit of inviting me for tea into his office every afternoon. And, uh, and he had some significant experiences of his own uh, in life, powerful experiences. And he had experienced and had become a leader in what, what became known in sort of religious lingo as, as a revival of sorts in, in Western Canada in the early 70s, where people became aware of the power of dealing with their stuff, mostly relational breakdowns, and living in the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you may remember those experiences. He he also had a Ph.D. in counseling and and was sort of the Christian counselor for the city in which I lived. Uh, As I was sitting in his office one afternoon over this cup of tea, he said to me something I will never forget. He sat back in his chair and in that reflective posture and talked about his experience in in, uh, helping lead this revival movement. And he said, you know, it happened. It happened. And it was a small period of time, and many people thought it was about technique, and they tried to copy it and engineer experiences and duplicate it and all that kind of... They tried to keep it alive, but he said that's not what it was. And they began to talk, in, in, in current terms, about his counseling experiences with the people, and he, he sort of put those two together, and, and then he leaned forward in his chair and looked at me and pointed his finger. He says, you know, if there's, if there's one thing that ties everything together and that I long for people to get, it's that in Jesus... We do not have to work for life. We get to work from life. Does that really describe the way I live? Or am I constantly working for the next level, hanging on to what I have? Somebody's going to take it away. Or devastated when what I was finally about to get suddenly disappears like a vapor. That's working for life. We don't have to live that way. In Jesus, I already have all of the life I really need, forever. In Jesus, life, real life, is the starting point, not the end game. Can you believe that? It's not just about forgiveness or engineering some experiences by which we might feel some spirit, or through counseling, trying to help people achieve more at their bios level, or attain some measurement, measurement of fulfillment in their suke level of life. The spirit God gave us is Life. He is the life of God in you. He is the life of God giving you the, the zoe that you were created for. You see, Abraham Maslow, who some of you have uh, studied a bit in, in some of your social science courses, Abraham Maslow had one thing right. There, there is this hierarchy of, of life needs. Starting at sort of the, well, we might call it the bios level, the physiological level. Breathing, food, water, shelter, clothing, sleep, and safety and security is also a bit about the BIOS level, some of it, health, employment, property, family, social stability. Moving up to more suke level stuff, love and belonging, friendship, family, intimacy, sense of connection, and self-esteem, confidence, achievement, respect of others, and then his his peak was what he called self-actualization, which included a, a strong moral compass and meaning and purpose and inner potential, and what he said was that it was rare that people ever got this and lived at it. But, although Maslow had some things right, he got the main thing wrong. We do not have to work from the bottom up. In Jesus... Through the Spirit of God who is the peak, the epitome of life, we can live from the top down, from something that beats even self-actualization, from the sense of significance and security of knowing that we have all of life there could ever be inside of us. You know, we spend way too much time and use up way too much brain power thinking about what it is we're working for, what we need to have how it is we need to keep what we have, what we're trying to achieve, this bucket list of stuff that's all about bios and zoe, or and, and, uh, and suke. What would happen if we just spent a little more time thinking about what we are working from? You know, that's one of the benefits and one of the, the, the reasons for a daily time of reflection with God in His Word and through prayer. That's what we get as we do that. Now, now let me put this on a, on a really surface level with a, just a, a very crude analogy. Let's say you're 30 years old. You've been working for years, getting prepared for your future. You've got your education. You've got your job. And now you have kid number one, but you have one big deficit. Through this process of working for life, you've accumulated a lot of financial debt. Some of which, you have to admit, had to do with spending money on experiences you felt you needed in order to feel life. What kind of life? Bios. Suke, okay. life. For the last three years, you've been living hand-to-mouth, two jobs, doing almost, doing with almost nothing. It's getting worse, not better. Creditors are at your door. You finally hit bottom because you don't even have money for the next month, and what you really need It is your own house. You'll never get it. But you know you need that house. And so in desperation, you go to your banker, whom you've been afraid to meet personally because they'll just force you to see how bad it really is. But you finally sit down with her and tell her your whole story and say, is there something I can do? The banker listens to you and he says, well, okay, let's start looking realistically at your accounts. She opens up your bank account and looks at it for a while, makes a few other clicks with her mouse and with this furrow on her brow. She says, is there something you haven't told me about? And your heart sinks. What's that? She says, you didn't tell me about your Aunt Millie. The inheritance you received from her several years ago, she must have been some wealthy woman because she left you with $10 million. Are there some strings attached to that money that makes it not accessible to you? You look at her with your head spinning around like, are you pulling my leg? Your mouth is open, you don't know what to say. And your mouth looks at you and says, close your mouth, you're starting to drool. She reaches out to wipe your face with a cloth as she's just wiped puke from a baby's face. And slowly it begins to dawn on you what that means. Now, finally, through a huge gift you really didn't deserve, you'd largely ignored Aunt Millie through her life, you now can actually start living from a position of life, not for the life you always wanted. Timothy, you have all the preparation you need. You have the spirit of life in you. It's there in the bank account right now. And now you get to show others how real it is in you for them. Just fan the flame of the Spirit of God planted in you. Let it break break through into life, which is similar to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, right? Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. When I read that phrase, fanning into flame, I can't help think about an experience that we had when our kids were really young, both preschoolers, on a really cold wintry day, waking up one morning to a really cold house. I went to the thermostat, did the only thing I knew how to do. (laughs) I couldn't, nothing happened. So I went down to the furnace and bent over and looked and, I don't know. So I called a friend, I thought it might help. I told him the problem, he said, hmm, probably a thermocouple. I said, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> I was too proud to ask him what a thermocouple was, but I finally spit it out. And He was an engineering tech, so he took delight in educating me in great detail while I was standing there shivering exactly how a thermocouple worked. As an important safety device to shut off the gas to your furnace should the pilot light go out. Finally, when he was taking a breath, I said, do I need to call a furnace guy? Who can I call on Saturday morning? He said, nah, just try and replacing it first. And if that doesn't work, then call a thermos guy or a furnace guy. So I went to the hardware store, got a thermocouple, and I changed it. With my wife overseeing the whole process, uh, breathing on my neck, beaking only occasionally. I got her done. We got her done. I turned on the gas, lit the pilot light, and I, I released LaDonna from her overseeing duties to go upstairs and turn up the thermostat while I crouched in that little space behind between the furnace and the wall to watch. She turned up the thermostat, there was this click, and a few second pause, and all the burners filed up. I I yelled to her, okay, turn it back down. Burners went off, and she said, is it working? I said, try that again. There was a few second pause, and then, and then I said, turn it down again. All the burners went off, and she said, is it working? I said, turn it up one more time. I love that. Ever seen a furnace burst into flame? Don't you just love that? You see, when you become a believer in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit comes inside of you. The pilot light is on. And to be filled with the Spirit, to fan into flame, the gift of the Spirit is simply when you face things that make you cold, when you face things that make you realize your own weakness, to allow the Spirit of God to burst into flame like it was designed to do. Because it is from the spirit of life in you that you get what it is you really want. What do we want? For the spirit of God, the spirit God gave us to not make us timid, but gives us power. That's what we want, isn't it? We think we don't have power, so we go for control. We go for status at some bios level. We can't live in contentment because we want something we don't have. At the suke level, we want validation. And so we try to control our image. We fulfill our distorted desires. What is it we have? We have empowerment to be not who we are, but who God called and created us to be, which makes all of those things that we desire secondary. So what are the things that you are screaming for? that you think you really need but don't have, that you're trying to prove that you can get, that you want people to see, what do those things say about how God might be inviting you to hear? Don't you realize I have already given you all you need for empowerment you really want? It's in the bank. The spirit God gave us does not make it timid but gives us power. Why do we need that power? Let's peel back one more layer. What is it that we're really afflicted with? We are afflicted with this terminal illness called self-focus. We think, as Paul says in Romans 12, more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We think more highly of ourselves and, well, we just think about ourselves more than we ought to think. In any discussion, our primary filter is, what about me? do you realize how this impacts me? Timothy, that's how people think and that's how you are thinking when you just think about what you think you can't do. Timothy, it's too much about you, but you have the zoe, the fullness of the life of God in you. His spirit and his spirit empowers you not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less and put others first. It's called love. In Romans 5, Paul says, the love of God has been poured out, all of it poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit He gave us. The greatest mark of the fullness of God's Spirit is people who are tripping over each other, trying to put others first. Love is not a feeling, it's simply putting into action. In our marriages, in our relationships, at work, in our neighborhoods, in our church, putting into action that you are seeing others' needs and putting others first. The Spirit God gave us did not make us timid, but gives us power in order that we can truly love, put others first. Because what is it we really need at the core? We desperately need a whole new way of thinking, of looking at life. The spirit God gave us is a spirit which produces, well, the translations vary. Self-discipline, self-control, sound judgment. The whole King James Version, I think I like that one best, it says a sound mind. The word group that this word is actually from has a fairly broad range of meaning. Uh, What's clear in all of it is that it's a word that talks about the ability to control how we think about something so that we can act in a certain way. Level-headedness might be a good word. I, I have certain go-to people when I find myself reacting to a situation, caught up in a power struggle maybe, and I say, can, can you help me have the right perspective on this? Is this a battle worth fighting? What is it we have when we have the spirit of life? What does it mean to fan into flame the, spirit, the gift of the spirit God gave us? To be filled with the spirit? It does not mean it does not mean that what we need is more of the Holy Spirit. What it means is we need to allow the Holy Spirit to have more of me. More control, primarily, of the way I think. A greater awareness of how I am so controlled in my heart by the bios and suke levels that my, naturally, my head naturally goes there. No, the life of the Holy Spirit helps us think in a whole different way, even about our own needs. Think with sound judgment. Empowerment in order to love because we can think right. Now let's briefly, very briefly talk about that second question. I have four minutes here. The rest of the chapter. You can read it on your own just with this outline in mind. What are some of the, what are some of the things... That Paul tells Timothy he must look for and emphasize and be prepared for as he leads the church into the future. Four quick things. Um, number one, you got to remember to keep the main thing. The main thing. Do not be ashamed about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering, sacrificing for the gospel. In Verse 10. This grace has now been re- revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death... And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How is it that a church can be afraid of the gospel by focusing on bios and suke levels of like and making those the gospel? God loves all people. We should love all people and serve them at their point of need. Suke needs, bios needs. Just meeting physical needs in the name of Jesus. Yes, we can't ignore needs. We can't ignore systemic hurts. But we cannot not give people the full meal deal. Make the main thing the big thing. One of the things that is much maligned in our world today is the Christian missionary movement. It's been accused of everything from destroying cultures to oppressing peoples to simply being a tool for political ends like colonialization. But can that perception be validated historically? That's been the quest of a sociologist by the name of Robert Woodbury. Several years ago, Christianity Today magazine reported on some of his research. While he was doing his PhD studies, casting around for some kind of line of research to sink his teeth or into, a professor made the comment, it was, it was, I think it was just sort of a by-the-by comment, that, that he kept finding this statistical link between democracy and Protestant. Missionaries, and so he, so he went to work. He found his he found his research, and what he discovered was amazing. The first thing he discovered was that contrary to the current stereotype, Protestant missionaries who were who were not state funded were actually some of the biggest critics of colonialization all the way around the world historically. He showed very clearly that the single largest factor in the countries in Africa that that developed and became healthy and educated, in which ritual abuses were stopped, the single greatest factor was the missionary movement. Realizing that his conclusions would not be accepted in politically correct circles, he did rigorous and sophisticated statistical data analysis on it. And the evidence was even more compelling. So he tested his testing to make sure he wasn't confusing correlation with causation and he put in controls for a host of variables like climate and health and location and accessibility and natural resources, colonial power, disease prevalence and and the list goes on. And his research kept holding up. He knew that even with his rigorous research, he could not get it published in any credible journal because it was so not what social liberal scholars wanted to hear. And so he tested it in other places in the world, like Asia. Same results. And so eventually, in spite of its controversial conclusion, Woodbury's research has been published in a major academic journal. But here's the kicker. Get this. The positive impact on culture at the bios level and the suke levels of existence applied only To what he called Protestant conversionary missionaries. Those whose core message was the word of the true gospel of the promise of life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is the gospel that changes cultures. It's a historical reality. It is the Zoe life in Jesus by His Spirit that is the most powerful and positive force in any level of real life. No wonder Paul says in Romans chapter 1, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Number two, if we really lived in the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us, we wouldn't let a little pushback, a little suffering stop us. Join me, he says, verse 8, For in suffering for the gospel. The greatest evidence of the power of the gospel is when people who have the Zoe life show that being robbed and pressured and stripped of life at those lower two levels, not really a big deal. We have the life that is truly life. Two weeks from now, Dave's going to explore that more with you in chapter 2. Number 3, our aim will not, no longer have to be personal fulfillment. Our aim will be holiness. Verse 9, he has rescued and called you to a life of holiness. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to allow the toughness of life to develop in me deeper and deeper ways the character of Jesus. How do I know if, if holiness is my goal and not personal fulfillment? Well, holiness doesn't ask, will this negatively affect me? It asks, will this build others up? Holiness doesn't ask, will this make me feel good? It asks, will this honor God? Holiness doesn't say, it's my right. I need this for me. It says, how will this reflect on Jesus who died for me? Holiness does not say, oh, where are the edges as far as I can go away from it? It says, where is the well that will give me the power to live like Jesus? Number four, the very end the last few verses, I will be a refresher of others who give their lives for the gospel. Refresh people, refresh others. That's how we live. We wrap her up as the worship team comes forward. Years ago, I had a neighbor who, uh, uh, he and I had these over-the-fence conversations, and and, uh, and he had been to our church once or twice with his family, and, and uh, um, we had talked about next steps, and at, at some time I said, you know, sometime I'd like to, uh, we could, have a small group together and explore this further. And one day he came to us. You know, he said, "I'm wondering if if you have one of those small groups you were talking about for a guy like me." I said, "Give me a week." And we started this small group in our home, and uh, and he walked through it, and and he was really engaged in it. But he came to this point of of that he wouldn't go any further. And, and one day he said, "You know, he said, I don't get it. I'm an RCMP." I walk through some pretty shady bars and get spat on and cussed out, but all I do is hold my head high and smile because I'm proud of the uniform. I should feel the way about Jesus who died for me to give me life, shouldn't I? That's it. What does the world need more of? It needs more of followers of Jesus who are not self-fulfilled, self-confident, and self-focused, but are simply living from the life of the living God, confident in the power of the good news that brings life. Folks, that is the only hope for the future. Together for tomorrow, united as one for the faith, for the life of the gospel of Jesus. That's what gets me going. How about you? Let's stand together and sing about the optimism we can have for the church of Jesus Christ together, us, for the future.